Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 55 of the Design Exec Club Town Hall. It, it, it's amazing, 55. That's my age. It's my, one of my favourite numbers. I love the symmetry when you get the, the 44, 55, 66. Um, that's just my peculiarity. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me are some of the smartest people that I know who are spread across a lot of territories, but we're all focused here on the US market. Um, uh, Hannah, I think you're in San Francisco, um, uh, today, I want to have a chat to you about interior design. Now, for a lot of people, interior design is just about making something look pretty or look nice. You and I know that's not actually what the interior design's about. Tell us about how interior design works for you and how fantastic it is when you start to change the software of how people work in spaces. Yeah, in spite of everybody's belief, yes, we do make pretty spaces. Absolutely. That is one of the drivers. But, you know, space, the interior is essentially functioning art. It's a places where it impacts people's behavior, their mood, their productivity, and so on and so forth. So as a designer, we go through understanding the human behavior. And internally, I think amongst our team, we sometimes even joke around and say how we need to be a psychologist to our clients to really extract what they couldn't tell us um, and able to extract as much as information about the company, their organization, their pain points, their culture and the brand and their wish list and so on and so forth. And all of that is what helped us to formulate into the perfect design for the clients. Otherwise, it's nothing but a pretty space. Don't get me wrong, that's important. It's equally important to make sure that it's a visually appealing space. But we truly believe that space should enhance the behavior and um, enhance the cultural and as well as the brand behavior as well. Yeah. I'm fascinated when we go to talk about this topic of the software for society. If we talk about high-performance software and we talk about getting more out of it, it's we've got lots of permission to talk about framing and we can change our viewpoints and we can and we can consider philosophical dilemmas. But when we talk about what doesn't seem to be working in our society, um, there's less permission to go do that. And I find that very interesting there. Rick, with your experience through the Institute of Architects and also um, uh, the DDC at New York City, you would have had those periods where you're trying to go do something which was expanding the opportunity, but there were also how do you correct some things which have been long-term broken. Were there those two different hemispheres of permission to actually talk about it or, you know, there's no permission leaning in, leaning out? Well, there are some building types in the public sector that have cried out for change. Uh, library design is one example. How a library is used currently is extremely different from how a library was used previously. So it's not hard to engage the design community, interior designers, architects, urban designers, in rethinking what a library's role is and how it relates even to the outside and reading gardens and, and how it brings people in and what people do once they're inside. I think the challenge that we faced at DDC was to look at other building typologies that were more insular, uh, police stations and firehouses amongst them, uh, and say that they are public buildings, they should engage the public in a way that libraries do almost automatically, and, and, and do a transformation about how they are not isolated obstacles to community engagement, but uh, foster it. Uh, even trickier uh, were homeless shelters. How does a homeless shelter become not something that is rejected by its surrounding community, but something ca that can create partnerships and, and engage people in activities that help change lives? Uh, and lastly, what the de Blasio administration had been doing when I was there, I've left, uh, and what it's still doing is looking at the changing nature of incarceration and the challenges involved with how people whose behavior has been deemed uh, antisocial can be uh, uh, thought of differently, treated with respect, and, and gotten hell off Rikers Island. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to come back to that because what I'm trying to do here is show that these two different hemispheres of thought, one which is actually high performance, high yield, and the other one which is trying to correct something that we know that's broken in there. Um, Julie, you, your world, in particularly in the hospitality, is actually about uh, what I would call the high performance, high experience, high outcome environment. People are very used to saying, how do we get more out of this, which is how do we tweak the software? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think every time we start a project, we have to re-examine what's changed in the world and how the attitudes of guests are going to be changing in the future and how our design can prepare for a future experience rather than just a present experience. 
because, you know, travelers are always looking for the next big thing. You know, we went through our experiential phase where everybody was taking Instagram photos and sending them home after that followed up from years of people um, consuming, just buying things and taking home gifts and tchotchkes and artwork and things like that to represent the trip that they had just taken. Mm-hmm. And now the whole world is moving into this transformational design where people want to travel and transform themselves or participate in the transformation of the area that they're they're going to. So in hotel design, we've always got to be looking ahead to what's going to be the next big thing and prepare our designs to be ready for that when the moment comes or to even start the trend and encourage the trend. Yeah. And so, you know, there we are able to talk very positively because we're going to make change there. And I think, Ronnie, the things that you're working on at the moment, if I go look around Hyperloop, the things that you're doing with um, uh, canine genomes, it's all about changing the software of how that's working. But it's uh, it's about the uplift, isn't it? It's about pushing us forward. But there's probably yeah. some dilemmas that are left behind that we haven't dealt with, which is maybe that it's like the operating system hasn't been addressed. There's so much of that. I mean, I think in, in itself, the concept of Hyperloop and especially what we're doing with Hyperloop transportation technologies, where we're looking at the entire journey, the entire spectrum of a journey, not just the Boston to New York City or uh, Cleveland to Chicago and connecting those two points, but what happens next? If I get to from New York City to Boston in 30 minutes, and it takes me an hour to get to my meeting from my destination in downtown Boston. It defeats the whole purpose. So how does this become a completely integrated um, system? So it looks at the whole of society, it looks at the whole of people's needs from the moment they're thinking about the journey to starting the journey to taking the journey to getting to a point where they get onto the transportation system that it happens to be Hyperloop. And all the way through to their final full destination. And how is that going to change our whole dynamic? Right now, New York City to Boston is, you know, it's an entire day, day trip, four and a half hours driving, et cetera. We want to just reduce that time so that even the Hyperloop piece of it, it just becomes the small part of your day, not the, the journey part, which is the issue at the moment. So there's that aspect. I'm involved with a... Uh, 16,000 acre inland port that's being built right now. And there's massive resistance within the community because people don't understand how that's going to actually import and impact the city that it's going to be put into. And they don't understand that actually a lot of that transportation is already happening right now. And what we're going to be doing is taking diesel trucks off the roads and we're building efficiencies and building a system But what we're also looking at with this particular project is building these community advisory councils where we get members of the community involved. And we're looking at an arts and and culture component to this, looking at environment and sustainability and getting the community involved with that, Um, housing and transportation. So a much broader and wider view than just the piece. So it's similar to Hyperloop in a way where we're just not thinking of this is the solution, but how does it impact everything around it? When people aren't sure of what's the unknown, you know, what's next, they take some very strange positions, don't they? Mm-hmm. I, I did a community consultation to go merge two sailing clubs together. So you've got people who are maybe a little bit more staid in their position. They think there's something which is right and absolute. And so we worked out how to go and actually get them to imagine what the new sailing club would be. And they were concerned about what sort of members would join the sailing club. And so I asked them very openly, give me a profile. Let's build a specification for what, for what the ideal member is. And uh, I was being a bit naughty because I was actually trapping them because what they did was they described somebody who was really an Olympic athlete. And I said, it's fantastic. You've given me the right specification because it's a new club that we're creating. Unfortunately, nobody in this room actually qualifies to be a member. <laughs> so, so it was interesting. The software that they went and specified was actually, it was fantasy. It wasn't contextual with, with the reality of who they were. And then I said to them, well, what we could do is change that specification and then we could add that accommodates all of us with the aspirations that we attract those sorts of people and we foster them to have those values. But 
we can't be members of a club that actually the specification for being a, club, a good club member, none of us fit. And, and so that was very interesting because I had to actually take them through an exclusion process to get them to change their mindset. Otherwise, there was nothing in it for them. And that, to me, I think is one of the big, important things. Dan, you've done a lot of projects which have been about changing people's behaviours, accommodating uh, diversity of needs. I remember one of the town halls, there was a conversation about are we designing for one or are we designing for many? So that comes into all sorts of behaviours, and we've spoken about that before. Is it easy to change people's behaviour and the software that they're actually running off? No, it's really hard. You know, people uh, operate on two things as, as, you know, as top priority in terms of, of the hierarchy. And it's, it's instinct and it's preconceptions. And instinct is universal. Preconceptions vary with the person. After that, we have design. So what we need to do to change behavior is either design for instinct, try to anticipate preconceptions, although that's impossible because they can come from anywhere. And then understand where our role is in terms of the things that we have influence over in terms of design. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's a great, great topic and super powerful to think about design in terms of behavior and performance. Uh, But, yeah, no, it's not easy. We, we, you know, we're we're just starting to learn more and more and more about it. And then... If we're just starting to learn it, how do we actually develop the skills there? Because how do we know when we've got a good understanding about behaviours? Most of us know if something looks right from typography or we know if something looks like from in a visual representation. How do we know that behaviours feel right? Well, it takes a lot of observation and watching and it does take some validation after the fact to see if what you've done has actually been successful. Now, if it literally is software, you can get almost instant reaction, because, and you can also change things uh, almost on the fly as opposed to physical spaces or physical products. So I suppose there might, you know, if I was working with a client, I'd be saying, well, we need to do some design research here. We're, we've got some unknowns. We've got a proposition we're going to put into the marketplace um, we need to monitor it. We need to then do rapid iterations to understand, is it right? We need to do some testing. But it's a longitudinal pursuit, isn't it? It's not just a design on paper and launch it out to the world. Yeah, I know, and it takes many iterations, and hopefully if those iterations are quicker or easier to do, even some iterations within the scope of the project itself, the further ahead you'll be in understanding what the, first of all, what expectations are by the person who is encountering the design but also what their behavior and performance is like. Uh, So what we need really is there's a lot more metrics in design in order to get there. We don't have very many metrics in design. Never been measured. It's always talk about return on investment, but that's not what I mean. I mean really metrics in terms of understanding uh, performance and behavior. And that's a a very interesting thing because I'm I'm not sure we understand how to measure that in the human being. So, therefore, we can't go and calibrate it so that there's a, a common measure. You know, I think most of us know if something actually was a good experience or not, but how do you measure experience in an, on an incremental scale that actually is then common amongst people? I know I've, I found it interesting when I was being asked about some pain um, recently. I had a, a knee problem and the, and the physiotherapist was asking me about pain. And I was thinking, what an interesting... You know, because how do you, is it a one pain or is it a nine pain? Or and, and, and then what I observed that she went and did was she remembered my increments of pain. And when I came back and spoke about it again, it was a relative scale that wasn't absolute. Whereas most things are measured in absolute units, not relative or contextual units. But, you know, as you said, we need to explore that there. John, you've lived half your life in a U.S software, half your life in a Canadian software. Yeah. Are you still confused how the two different operating systems work? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And get confused more and more each day. Yeah. I I noticed it more, honestly, when I first moved here, just you you get into these high-level macro sociological kind of 
constructs that people have these predetermined ideas about things, you know, kind of like Dan was just saying, and you, know, you can call them stereotypes. And uh, I remember being 25 years old and at a party and having a, you know, chatting with a woman and all of a sudden she turned and on her heel and walked away as soon as it came out that I was American. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so talk about an interesting software interaction there. Well, it was like it was like she was in an Android app and couldn't run on iOS or something. It, it was yeah, it was very much like that. <laughs> so, so one of the things I find really interesting about the U.S. software, and particularly I look at say electoral software, because we've seen in the last six months there's been a um, a demonstration that there might be some parts of the U.S. electoral process that seriously you're wondering why they're there. So in Australia and in Canada, we have an election. That night, there is an announcement from the Electoral Commission who won the election. In the US, it's an announcement made by the media who's won the election. Then it goes through all of these different validation points all the way up to inauguration, and there's six or seven points where it's kind of been reconfirmed. It would, seem, it would seem that that might have made sense before modern communications, but it doesn't make sense in modern in an era of modern communications. Well, it, I would even sorry. So I was just going to say, and you even add the, the other layer on it that's different here from the states is the randomness of the elections. Like there's a certain time frame to it, but an election can be called before the term is up. So it's not a set four years and an election campaign is three months long rather than a year and a half long, like it seems, well, not like it seems, but like it is down in the U.S. Uh, It it completely changed the dynamic of of how people get involved. It changes the involvement of, I I think, if I can stick my neck out a little bit, I think it, it actually gets people to look into it more more deeply, you know, quicker but deeper because they only have a short period of time to consider this as opposed to over a year and a half where you're by the nine months into a 15-month cycle, you're feeling like you're drowning and you're exhausted. And, and it's not necessarily that there's good or bad, but as we're trying to go, you know, if I go think of that uh, iOS, Android, Windows, Mac OS, they're all revised. Both the platform gets changed, the hacks get taken out, there's a feedback mechanism to say we need to put in for new devices and new, and there needs to be new systems. Government's not particularly good at that, but we can turn around and Hannah can go have a conversation with her clients about how do we create high productive works, workplaces and go get more out for the, the people. Julie can have a chat about let's go actually get an even better customer experience. Dan can work out how to go get a better customer experience. Rick can go work on things like, you know, police stations and make them better, Ronnie. Like everybody's got this opportunity to participate in that. But Governments have this, and and the laws in country, particularly around electoral laws, they give an indication that there's not an open way to go change the underlying operating system and therefore get the improvements in the software. And I don't know any country that's 100% right. If you take the United Kingdom, they don't have a constitution. So everything in the United Kingdom is grey. United States, you've got a constitution, but you're up to Amendment 27 or 28. In Australia, we have a constitution, but I don't think anybody knows what's in the constitution. You know, so so different countries have different software. Then, and what I'm trying to suggest is we need more participatory based um, uh, government, and we need more participatory based feedback, not just electoral cycles, but actually at the fundamentals. Because I think Ronnie, with you trying to go deal with how you change trucks and how you change it from being carbon based energy into electric energy, that you know, there's a there's a need for some laws to change there. That's not easy to do, is it? It's not. Um, California is very uh, progressive in that regard. And, you know, as they say here, where California goes, so goes the rest of the country. And actually, that with trucking and electric trucks is going to be the influencer. So 
California's mandated that uh, trucks need to be emissions-free within X number of years from now. And because of that, those trucks don't stay just inside the state. So because they're coming to Utah, we now need to be able to cater for EVs and probably hydrogen vehicles and other things, which means we need to train a workforce. We need to bring in you know, jobs and skills and then the technical equipment to be able to service all of that. So that's a really interesting shift. And that's something to, again, to bring to the community that we're actually gonna be bringing a workforce and we're gonna be bringing jobs to this thing. It's not just a bunch of diesel trucks coming in, we're gonna be parked there, which is the current perception for some people. So uh, there's an interesting law in Australia about the, the width of a truck. And the width of, the maximum width that a truck can be is actually three inches smaller than the Tesla electric truck. So Tesla electric trucks will never be in Australia as standard trucks, but otherwise they'll always have to be extra wide trucks, unless we can work out how to give feedback into the system, say, we're not making that many trucks here, we need to be able to import Tesla trucks. To do that, we need to change the the road law. But when you change that road law, there's a whole knock-on because are our lanes on our roads three inches too small or six inches too small. And then that changes then the topology of roads and the safety of roads, all sorts of issues. And unless we have these conversations about the dilemmas of transformation, a truck size being slightly wrong has so many knock-on effects, we need to actually go into that. Rick, you would have had those experiences when you were with the DDC, that there would have been small changes that then became massive changes Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, speaking about road width, the uh, the width of a typical New York City roadway was based on horses. Uh, the ability of two horses to pass abreast was the word used in the code. Uh, uh, so I think roads have always been determined by how they were used. You see old photos of Manhattan from the 19th century, uh, and there are very, very few vehicles of any sort, uh, many pedestrians. Uh, it's almost it's looking a little bit like now. But trans- transformation uh, by regulation, transformation by code, transformation by technological uh, improvement is uh, a, a fact of life. Uh, we tried at DDC to do that by guiding principles, not by mandated uh, 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 and, and prescriptive uh, code requirements, uh, make suggestions that were uh, performance-oriented in how things made sense. And then how did the using guidelines to introduce, you know, uh, new requirements, new standards, how did that work as against going prescriptive on hard regulations? Well, the, the guidelines, the guiding principles, so-called, uh, we considered software. In fact, I could show you the book, but it was labeled 2.0 because there had been prior efforts at design and construction excellence. And the reiteration, uh, you know, basically valued the role of the designer, said that the creativity of the design community was what we were paying for as clients. Uh, We weren't going to design it all ourselves and have someone just put their name on the filed drawings. Uh, It was all about trust, confidence and valuing creativity and diversity of expression. And then was there a standard, after you've gone and given the guidelines, was there a, a standard that people could say, we have achieved, you know, level one, two, three, five of this standard, or was it a, just a, a green or red light, whether they were in or out? Well, the standards were on uh, four primary issues, sustainability and resilience. Uh, uh, you could be sure were at the top of the list, but almost co-equal were a concern about social equity, which I call the fundamental software, you know, uh, uh, fueling our society, and uh, what we called uh, healthy living, which was a euphemism for public health, because it also included mental well-being. And those are what we were prescribing. It wasn't window size, it, you know, it wasn't brick dimensions. It was about how you approach the fundamental issues of a fair society, a just society, and one that valued the environment over private property. And so... So far, we've been talking about things where the software is uh, mainly about enhancements. But I I remember the observation that was made by Jeannie Gang on um, a study about the million-dollar blocks, which was the cost to incarcerate the people from this particular block was a million dollars a year, whereas the social programs to actually keep them out of incarceration, to give them some opportunities in life, was probably somewhere between a half and a third of that. 
And you're saying, well, the software is somewhere wrong where we've got a prevalence to incarcerate uh, rather than give people uplift. How do you value get... system. Sorry? It's the value system. You could define yeah. that as the software. But, um, uh, yeah, those costs are easily calculable. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think if you were to look at uh, how things have changed in New York uh, recently, there's been much more emphasis on bringing people back into society, not isolating people on uh, prison island and jail island. And uh, and that's partly an economic calculation, not, not just a social one. Mm. I've been watching with great interest um, Iceland coping with the volcano uh, that, uh, that's happened there. And I'm not sure if anyone's been watching this volcano go and develop because it's a it's a. It's not like one of the big volcanoes, which is popping its top and then interrupting international travel. This is in a valley. It was just all of a sudden magma started to come out. It's now an extremely high mountain. It keeps going. They're trying to work out how to go solve it. But the software that they have to bring in is what's the acceptable safe distance? And that changes every week. How do you communicate that through to the population? How do you make sure that people don't get close enough to the gases so it's going to be, you know, they've got uh, lung problems from the sulphur? And it's been interesting seeing how adaptive they've been in realising new circumstance, new rules, it's adaptively changing. And I wonder if COVID has helped them get to that point of uh, knowing how to make on-the-fly rules and adapt and change because I think that's one of the things that we've learned. My question is, can we go and actually use those learnings and get to that adaptive side or do we have to go through the softer and slower method that Rick was suggesting, which is guidelines rather than things which actually become very fast and rapid changes which are either you're in or you're out. Julie, what do you think? Yeah, I just um, was listening to the news um, about the Ford's F-150 truck and um, it is the number one, has been for decades, the number one selling vehicle in the United States to the tune of like $42 billion a year. And Ford has gone out of their way and just decided that they're going to make that vehicle an all electric vehicle. And so what they have to do now is they have to go back and sell it to the people who have been spending $42 billion a year on this vehicle. And so they've come up with some incredibly creative ads because everyone's concerned is an electric vehicle won't be powerful enough and won't be fast enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was watching a documentary on a, an ad that they made where they had the new F-150 tow, I think it was a thousand of the old 150s. And then they loaded all of those thousand one F-50s, F-50s on 150s onto a train and they had the new truck pull the train with the trucks loaded onto it. So it was a very, very interesting way of selling it back to their their fan base that have the moving from carbon-based to electric would not be an issue in terms of the performance of the favorite thing that they owned. So I think there's some like maverick thinking out there that's taking the new laws that are coming up and just kind of saying, okay, this is inevitable. How do we take that inevitable action and turn it into something um, that we can still make money from? Now, the pity was they didn't redesign. It still looks like a truck. They haven't made any other improvements to it other than that it's energy-based, but I thought it was a pretty interesting example of how um, they were looking at the new rules, the new software, and selling that back with no penalty to the same. And and so when we have popularist politicians, it's very easy for them to go and say, oh, the old and the status quo is actually correct rather than being progressive. Because it's very easy to appeal to people that what we know is actually correct and that's exactly how it needs to be. You've just been through a big chapter where you've had a popularist politician who appeared to help you to think that yesterday was better than tomorrow. And uh, and I, so I find that quite interesting. You know, it, we see it with vaccine hesitancy that um, there's people who are turning around saying, I don't understand the vaccine, so therefore it must be bad. Dan, how do you get people from having fears which are unfounded but then there's an antagonist who's trying to go and promote it into actually saying, no, the new behaviour, the new method, or if I asked you like the billion-dollar question? It really, you know, one of the things you have to look at is ideology. So facts fall by the wayside. Science falls by the wayside when ideology comes into play. So you really need to understand ideology and what's driving that. 
And what's driving the resistance to science or the resistance to uh, innovation or resistance to things that seem uncertain, you know, is the old more comfortable than the new and the unknown. And boy, you've seen lots and lots of examples of that around here lately. And so with those comfortable and familiar rather than uncomfortable, is that something which is then built into the DNA for a community? You know, Iceland, as I mentioned, being very proactive, they're adapting to their change. They don't seem to, they, they've seem to separated the idea of societal um, status quo and norms and, you know, trolls and legends away from the way that they adapt and change in politics and in, in, the, in the way that their society runs. Is that something which is going to be different in different nations? Because I think my take on the US is there's a lot of people who really like yesterday and that you celebrate yesterday and you celebrate the, the traditions and the behaviours of yesterday. Is that harder to move a population? I, I think Australia is somewhere between them. But we, we like to be progressive, but we're also very conservative on things. I, it's really hard to move. It takes time. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of information. It takes having some faith or credibility or some maybe some representatives who will help uh, portray that credibility. And boy, it takes it takes a long time. You know, the problem we have in the U.S. is is the country is really divided politically. And it's too easy to treat it like a football team. You know, when you watch a baseball game or a football team, two people can see the same thing. But if they're on different sides, you know, that guy is either safe or he's out, right? Mm -hmm. The throw was in time or it wasn't in time. Depends. They saw the same thing. It just depends what team you're rooting for. So once you set up that mindset that, yeah, my team needs to win or this is this is what I now believe in, facts and evidence become secondary. And that's a tough thing to tackle, you know, if you're trying to change behavior or change people's minds. That ideology is a tough thing to tackle. Yeah. I, um, I'll put a link in to, to this episode for Brian Collins and Simon Sinek talking about infinite games, finite games, because I think there's a bit in that, you know, you mentioned... If we bring sporting analogies and sporting behaviour, which is you're either with my team or not with my team, you either win or you lose. We don't necessarily understand how societies work in there. Hannah, you've recently changed teams. You were in New York now in the last year. You've moved to San Francisco. How different is the software between a New York way that things are conducted and a California and San Francisco way that things are conducted? Surprisingly, it is very different. And I think first few months, I was constantly reminded by my peers that you got to think more like West Coaster rather than East Coaster. And I couldn't quite understand what that meant. Design is a design, deadline is a deadline, client is a client. And I think it's an approach. And again, it kind of goes back to the familiarity, right? In, in the culture of the West Coast, the what per people perceive as a bit of a relax and, you know, you're kind of expecting somebody to return your call or email within a matter of an hour, whereas that's a norm in the East Coast way, whereas here, you'd be lucky, maybe you'll get a call back next day. And it's that sense of urgency, it's sense of the, the familiarity that I had that I was bringing back from New York and trying to compute in the software of the West Coast, it was challenging. Um, and quite honestly, I think the maybe it's a saving grace was part of that was, you know, when everybody ended up going shelter at home, everything changed. So the familiarity of what I knew coming from the software of the East Coast way and the West Coast that I'm trying to adapt it to, it kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. So we're all kind of trying to learn and we're now in a full virtual society of you know, you're you're constantly on the meeting back to back, whether it's a format of Zoom or Team or whatever the the, the platform. But um, the idea of I think the the work and the the you know the behavior has somewhat changed as well. So in certain way, I guess it made my transition a little bit easier. Um, but definitely, first few months it was definitely shocking, which uh, you know I didn't necessarily think that I would, but uh, it was very apparent. Yeah, I remember I was um, 
I was at the Museum of Art and Design in Columbus Circle, and I was I was having this conversation during uh, MIC by Design Week, and it was with a guy, and I'm sure I'm going to get his surname wrong, Jason Schlumber, who was um, the CEO for the um, uh, National Endowment for the Arts. And I was using particular terms, and he jumped on me three or four times, and it wasn't subtle. This was like, I'm shutting you down. How dare you? And it was the fact that things like urban uplift in Australia is, it's it's basically there's going to be uplift in an urban environment. Well, he then brought in all the layers of, well, what does that mean from a racial perspective? And, and what I learned was there was a whole bunch of gentrification, urban uplift. There was all this language that had so much more particular meaning in New York and also with this with this gentleman because of his work, I felt like I'd gone eight rounds in a, in a boxing ring with him. We wound up being great friends, but what we understood was that there was this software difference between what I, what I understood the term to mean and the way I would use his language and what he would. And that, that I think is part of that East Coast, West Coast. It's also between countries. Um, Ronnie, you're working on Hyperloop Transport Technologies. You're doing projects in France. You're doing projects in the Middle East, uh, which, again, I think it's uh, there's different cultures between the different countries there, no doubt. You've got them. Uh, you've uh, sought certification from TUV in Germany, the Standards Authority. You've got Standards Authorities in the US. You're in cross-cultural software soup. How do you do it? Um at, at this stage, a lot of the work is still figuring out the infrastructure of just how this is going to work. But the passenger experience and how do we actually start to rethink that, right? So the challenge um, has always been for us is just to think what, what we're doing as a transportation system is so different to start with and what, how that's going to change society. So how do we make the whole ride, the whole journey of that different as well. So ticketing, for example, and how are we going to be able to do that in a way that's completely like seamless? How do we make things disappear that people are used to or that are a hassle at the moment? Um, culturally, until we really get a, a physical installation going and have to look at that particular culture and that society and what those particular rules and laws are that might be around security, where we actually have to fit into existing norms, those are all going to have to be considered. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea that we could actually create an environment, so think of a, an airplane, small regional jet airplane that you're inside of, but it's a completely free design space now. It doesn't have to be seats all in a row, right? Which is sort of the train convention. Um, we have now screens that are so high resolution and they can wrap around surfaces that we could project anything onto those. So essentially we could create an environment because it's software that the passenger can decide what kind of journey and ride they want to have. I would like to be underwater. I'd like to be on the surface of Mars. I'd like to have a meditation space. And that essentially if you go into a capsule with a group of like-minded people, you could actually change and adapt that environment to suit your particular needs and the mood that you're in right now or the country that you're in, the space you're in. So we're thinking about this as a very fluid and adaptive space and give as much of the choice to the passenger as we possibly can and not have them conform and fit to something that's dictated to them. So then I want to go and actually go, Ronnie, have you got your phone there that's got your bio passport on it or your bio visa? I'm going to bring that up there because, Julie, you're about to go and do some international travel in the next couple of months. Have you contemplated how difficult it's going to be to move across the different boundaries of different countries? Because it's hard enough having a normal passport and having a normal visa to get into a country do you think they're ready to accept your bio visa that you've actually, you know, you've had your shots in Hong Kong and that it's going to be accepted through the different terminals that you go through? Currently, I still have to do COVID test because I'm going to go to the US, I'm going to go to the UK and then back to Hong Kong. So currently, I still have to do a COVID test before each of those international um, borders is crossed. 
I know that um, weeks it might change before then, but I've got my vaccine, a Hong Kong vaccine Pfizer card, and I've got uh, I'll do the tests for now. Yeah. It's interesting. John, have you got um, uh, uh, some accreditation in Canada that says you've been vaccinated and therefore you've got more privileges? Australia's trying to work out if we can have one between our states, let alone um, national borders. I, I have yet to see or hear anything about privileges being associated with it, but I, I just got my first shot last week, so... Uh, and I, I did get a, an ID card that I was told to protect with my life. So my, you know, based on this, this the level of um, intensity that they told me to protect this card with, I'm assuming that there must be something coming down the, the pike with, you know, with respects to that. It's interesting. It's a physical card. It's not a digital record. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and that I find, you know, governments are really bad at doing things between you know, state governments in, in the same federated country, oh, yeah. let alone moving across international borders in there. Um, Ronnie, have you had any need to go and leave the US with the, with that little um, QR code that you've got and prove it, or are you um, still trying to work out how to get around the boroughs of New York? Um, I did actually spend a week in Jamaica um, two weeks ago, but there wasn't any time where anyone asked to actually see this. What I did have to bring, though, is paper evidence that I'd had a, um, I'd been tested, and and that is not this. You know, this actually was based on the tests, ironically, but um, that wasn't the device that they used. It was a sheet of paper that came, you know, with their signatures on it. Yeah, I'll put a link through as well to um, Ai Weiwei's um, uh, Corona Nation, which is the story of Hubei province in that early period of the uh, pandemic in, in China. And the guy who's filming it, you know, fly on the wall um, a journey trying to move around in Hubei province, it's it looks like he's got a 1980s, here's my carne, here's my visas to get across. It's just A4 sheets of paper that he's actually trying to get across the border. And you're going, really? Is that uh, none of the disaster movies I saw that all go back to something you'd printed off in your laser printer as the credentials? But that seems to be where we're up to in the world. That, that software seems really cumbersome and, and not scalable. You know, because it's quite easy to go there and forge those documents, or is it, or is it that it's just human confidence that we need in a new system? We think we've solved it, and therefore, if we see a bit of paper that's got a stamp, like we recognise that it's okay. I, I don't believe it's because of any of those. I think it's just so new, and because there's no uh, common solution, the safe thing is to carry a piece of paper. Everyone can read a piece of paper, but if they don't um, trust the electronic format that it's done in, it's not known to them, I don't think it feels as safe. Well, I, I, would, I would interject that you know, there's one element of that that's not necessarily correct, is if you're traveling, traveling internationally, you can't necessarily read that piece of paper. Right? So there, there is a, you know, there's a hiccup to that. The, the one thing that I've been like that's been mulling around in my head this whole conversation, and it started with you know, Ronnie's first uh, it, bits of conversation with you, Mark, as it, like this whole discussion is really about user experience, about just how people interact with the world around us. And, and what I'm really, what I've been seeing a lot, if thinking about a lot lately is, and, and just to carry on with your, your, your software, iPhone versus uh, it, Google Android analogy, it, it, I think we're in the middle of a renaissance, like flat out in the middle of a modern renaissance. We've, we're switched from from the analog, and we're now fully we're, we're moving into digital. But we still have one foot on either side of that that threshold. And it, it, I, I've been studying and really paying attention deeply to blockchain and cryptocurrency and what that's doing to the financial world, and 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 seeing what's happening there as really analogous to what we're talking about here. We're, we're resetting our world right now. And we, we've, the internet became, back in the 90s, was a copy machine and it just blew up everything. You know, we copied everything in the world. You have, you know, a digital form of a piece of music and now there's 10 million 
copies of that piece of music. And it, so we, we, as humans, we're, we're transitioning from this phase of analog and limited information to an, a complete excess and an overload of information. So, you know, so we've touched on wanting to go back to the 50s by, I would argue, a generation that's you know, my age, our age, and up, thinking that going backwards is the way to go. While the, I watch my daughter and my son, who are sitting there multitasking, playing video games, and, and, and watching videos and doing homework all at the same time and it makes my mind want to melt but they just look at me like this is just how it works so we're just we're going through this user experience change that is unfathomable to anybody you know within you know, more than 20 years ago like we, we could never have predicted any of this change that was coming and how fast it's happening and just hearing like what ronnie's talking about in the context of hyperloop and stuff and it's, it's happening in transportation it's happening in finance it's happening in it, everything that we're doing right now and it's it, uh, there's a lot of spinning heads right now with the amount of change i think and i think we're all reacting to it politically everything it's it's a really fascinating connection and a fascinating sociological transformation that's happening. Yeah, and I think that COVID happened at a oh, time yeah. when we are all connected, and suddenly this was possible. And it really feels like COVID has just thrown us ten years into the digital future. Oh, and people who weren't using these kind of communication tools that we're just having this meeting with. I mean, Zoom is just so ubiquitous now. I mean, yeah. Really, everyone knows how to use it. So, Ronnie and, and, and John, I really like where, where you're taking this because that then means there's a revolution. And we know that we're... Renaissance, yeah. Well, a revolution, a renaissance. Whenever there's dramatic change, if there isn't really good intellectual rigour behind it, you wind up with idiots who begin to dominate because they find the gap and then they actually take over in the gap. And that, that to me, is the, why this conversation is important. We need to have more interaction to make sure that these systems are being purposefully planned, not accidentally solved. And, and that, that's something that I've noticed is a big problem. Purposefully planned is a conversation that we need to have, not accidentally solved. And, and I, when I look at the QR codes, when I look at um, uh, Julie trying to go travel with her pieces of paper, with John with your card, that feels like it's accidentally solved, not purposely planned. It's reactionary. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this is what's triggered the blockchain in some, to some degree and, you know, non-fiat currencies and cryptocurrency because people no longer trust fiat currency and the, and the system, right? So we're finding a way around that. It's ironic that they call blockchain trustless because it's establishing trust, but it, but it's based on a trust, a lack of trust as well. Yeah. Right. Dan, you've got a quick comment you want to throw in. Well, I was going to uh, blame ourselves. You know, we spent the last 40 years making digital interfaces intuitive and seamless and instant and quick. And this is where we've come. You know, I hear people say, uh, like, well, I'm a digital native or I'm really good at apps. And the only reason you're good at it is because for the last 40 years, people have been working hard behind the scenes to make you good at it. So, yeah, I guess uh, it, it's been decades in coming, right? But I guess we're responsible for making that happen. Okay. So I want to go in just before we wrap up with there's a big difference between how, how Microsoft approached Windows and, and how they upgraded their software, which was there was backward reference to everything. Um, there's an IBM system called Kix, and it goes back to the 1970s. And Microsoft still have interfaces for Kix, whereas Apple turned around and just said, no, sorry, that operating system is gone. Those things no longer exist. We don't support them. One of them had a truncating. The other one had a legacy extension. Can we just have a truncating mindset or do we need to have that legacy integration? Rick, you've probably experienced more of this. Um, you know, I was just thinking that before Microsoft, someone wrote about software, but soft, what light through yonder windows, maybe it was singular window breaks. Soft has always been good. Everybody loves software designers. Hardware designers are a little more suspect. Why is that? 
you know, uh, you know, what are the other meanings of soft that are cuddly, uh, uh, soft sell, you know, in advertising, uh, uh, you know, using subtle persuasion, soft money, so much better than hard cash, you know, <laughs> to, to influence elections. Uh, uh, what would be uh, a soft rock? I don't know, uh, you know, where the lyrics matter, you know, not, not just the drumbeat. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, people are accepting of changes in software upgrades and otherwise, no matter what. So then I'll, I'll keep going on that. Uh, life becomes hard if the software isn't right. Yeah, that to me, that to me is something that I'd look at here. Particularly, it's not so much for the privileged people. You know, those two hemispheres I was talking about. People who are trying to work out how to extend and and have elite performance. That they get that, but it's hard for people who either get truncated and missed out on something. It's hard for people who haven't been included. It's hard, and particularly when you've got a rapid increase in the elite side, the performance side, are we doing the same for the people who are at the margins and are we lifting them up or are we stretching those two hemispheres too far apart? And that, that to me, is a very a purposeful thing that we need to go and address. It's not going to be popular because it sounds like you're, if I go into the US context, that sounds like socialism and you're trying to go, and what, these people are lazy, why can't they do things? Well, we know that's not the way how it all works. People who are involved in social services and supporting communities know that these people need assistance because they either haven't been given the tools, they don't have the means, they don't have resources. We need to make sure that we're including them as we go and upgrade that software there. Um, I'm going to go to wrap up, everybody. Is, is there anything anyone wants to say, add, or do we think we've gone through all of the hard topics as we've been talking about software for society? Julie? Yeah, I think uh, going to Rick's point about hard versus soft, it also is very much like hard is equal to a fixed mindset, which are the people that have difficulty changing and growing. And soft is more like a growth mindset, which is where we're finding all of these changes possible. So we could correct our basic software. And um, as people are educated and as they learn, have them become familiar with growth and change from an early age. I think that would allow all of us to happen in a more, um, at a faster pace, at a more natural evolution rather than this need to go back and experience something that's safe and nostalgic versus something that's risky and, and way out there. Yeah, fantastic. I love that. Anybody else that's got Nahano, have you got anything you're trying to go add to us from San Francisco before we wrap up? I think Julie just wrapped it perfectly. I mean, it's absolutely right. It's all about the behavior. And if we're teaching from the get-go to be acceptable to the changes rather than seeing as a familiarity or erratic changes, um, you're absolutely right. It's going to make the process so much simpler and much smoother rather. And it won't be such a hard, um, hard line between this two-sided. And I think, uh, Julie, you absolutely nailed it. The idea of the growth mindset is going to fit into that, um, adapting the software rather than actually the hard thing of trying to stay stuck at a, at a particular position. Everybody, it's awesome to have access to your minds. This is a, you know, a, to be one of the most interesting conversations I've had because we're trying to work out about undefined problems yet, the unknowns that are in there. Um, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And good seeing everyone. Thank you. Good to see you. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.